0: Philippians chapter number 2, I've mentioned it many times, so let's preach it here tonight. Philippians chapter number 2, you can't really fathom what Christmas is about apart from the theological framework that Philippians chapter 2 presents. Philippians 2 is recognized as a hymn of Christ because many... Would Bible scholars tell us that this passage records an actual hymn that was sung in worship by the early church? And it's this passage of Scripture, chapter one and chapter two is part of a larger conversation about Christian unity. In verses one through four of chapter number two, Paul issues a call, a challenge. A demand to spiritual unity. And then the rest of the chapter, it just gives us four different models of this selfless humility that is needed for spiritual unity. He gives the example of Jesus Christ. And you think, well, why give any other example? But the Holy Spirit did. He gave us Paul himself. Paul was able to, to give testimony of the fact that he had this selfless humility that promoted spiritual unity. And then he points out Timothy and also Epaphroditus. And then in verse number five, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the verses following verse five through 11 are considered to be this theological, Christological centerpiece and jewel of this entire book. But he says, let this mind be in you. Think this among yourselves, which was also the mindset of Jesus Christ. Paul's concern for the Philippians was that they would live out this mutual relationship of humility and attitude That which characterized Jesus Christ would be the characterization of their lives and this church family. So we take up the mind of Christ. It's not for the satisfaction of our curiosity so we could have the intellectual aspirations that Christ had. But rather it's for transformation of our lives. Paul's challenging the church, let this mind take this mindset ...within you so that you can experience the reviving that even Jesus experienced. You said he was revived. Well, we're going to find he wasn't simply revived. He was rewarded and refreshed by the exaltation that God gave him. And it was through and as a result of this mindset. And if Christ experienced exaltation, why shouldn't we expect at least some transformation within our lives... Verses 6 through 11 explains the mindset of Christ. It goes on to tell us about a, a selfless humility of Christ. And it also explains a, a majesty that Christ has. That's one of the things that stands out, I think, in our Christmas songs is this majestic in its sound, but majestic in the wording and majestic in the presentation. And this is the the statement here, a vital statement in all the New Testament about the divine nature of Christ, His redemptive work, His sovereign authority as Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 11, we really have two basic parts. Verses 6 and 8, you find the self-humbling of Christ. He humbled Himself. Verse 9 through 11, we find Christ being super exalted. Let's stand together and read these verses beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. Please be seated. Verses 6 through 8, let's talk about the humbling of Jesus Christ. We find Paul explaining the humiliation of Christ by contrasting His eternal deity with His human life. God and the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly body. Verse 6 teaches us that Jesus is eternally God, who being in the form of God. The Bible's clear and it's consistent in teaching that Jesus Christ is God. Christianity is Christ. Christ is God. If you can undermine the deity of Christ and just make Him really a good teacher, a great prophet, You render Christianity impotent. All of our hopes rest on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. So first of all, we find Christ, he's humbling himself, according to verse 6, in heaven. Christ's humility in heaven is described explicitly as though he was in the form of God... He did not count his equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. He he was humbling himself in heaven. Completely God, entirely God. But he didn't allow his being God something that would limit him from humbling himself. We know He's God in His existence. The pre-incarnate Christ was God by nature. Verse 6 describes Christ as being in the form of God. And the statement refers to the eternal nature of Christ long before He came into this world as a human being. Jesus Christ did not come into existence 2,000 years ago. He's always eternally existed. The word form simply speaks of His internal reality being expressed in His external appearance. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He he was simply... Existent long before the manger, long before coming to the the cattle stall. He's always existed as God. But he humbled himself in heaven to participate in this plan and process in which he determined you were worth his humbling himself to get to this earth. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Christ is not a mere reflector of God's glory. He is the radiance. He is the one who radiates the glory of God. There are other cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, who will try to tell us that they make much of Jesus, but they're not making of Jesus what the Bible makes of Jesus if they minimize his deity in any form or fashion. He is fully God. He shines forth his own essential glory along with that of the Father and the the Spirit of God in that mystery known as the Trinity. Humility in heaven because of his existence. But also his attitude. Notice in verse 6, who being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery. Robbery speaks of a plundering a a prize or anything to be seized or greatly desired. Robbery speaks of Christ's attitude toward the perfect will, the redemptive plan of God the Father. See, every privilege of deity, it belonged to Christ because he was God. Yet he did not hold on to the glory of his deity like a robber clutching his stolen uh, items. Christ, who had every reason to put his rights first, did not. He did not view His divine glory as something He must hold on to at all costs. Therefore, His humility is evidenced through these next two verses. Verse 7 and 8, notice what they say. But made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." The incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So we see humility in heaven, verse number 6. But now let's talk about the incarnation in verse 7. The incarnation. That's what we're emphasizing at Christmas. What is Christmas? It's Jesus making himself of no reputation. How? By taking upon himself the form of a servant. How? By being born in the likeness of men. See, the phrase, he made himself of no reputation, means to empty. He made void, he drained out, he abased, or he neutralized. Jesus emptied by taking the form of a servant. The same word, form, in verse 7 As well as verse 6, when Christ took on the form of a slave, he also took on the appearance of a slave. He looked like man. He looked like us. This taking on was actually an emptying. He was stooping. Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave, but rather he manifest and demonstrated the form of a slave. He was not being demoted, but rather he was self-humbling. How? By being born like us. Being born in the likeness of man. Listen, if God could entrust his baby in a feeding trough, Ain't nobody got a problem with our nursery. Says one who's been there. You know what the problem is? Lack of humility. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, he was the God man. Not God indwelling man, of such there has been many. Not a man deified, of such there has been none, except in myths of pagan systems or thought, but rather Jesus was God and man, combining in one personality the two natures a perpetual enigma and mystery baffling the possibility of explanation. Boy, that takes some shopping um, pizzazz out of Christmas. That really just takes the wind out of looking for the right sail and having the right pastries and, and having the right kind of uh, ambiance in our home when we think about Christmas is ultimately about God, fully God, completely God, also becoming because of his self-humbling completely man. Amen. Think about it. Christ who, and I think we can, we can think about it here a little bit. We haven't had too much eggnog for which we can't still think. Let, let's, let's baffle the, the, uh, uh, the cancel church crowd and let's, let's demonstrate we can still think. We have a Bible, we have God, we can think. So think about this. Christ who in eternity past forever existed with God the Father without a mother, but in time rested with His mother without an earthly father. Think about it. God who in Eden's garden took from a man a motherless woman. In Bethlehem's barn took from a woman a fatherless man. You following? Think about this. Jesus, the Ancient of Days, became the Infant of Days. A baby as old as his heavenly father, but ages older than his human mother, Mary. You still have room for thinking? Think of this one. Jesus, who created the angels, was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus, who said, before Abraham was, I am, was born 2,000 years after Abraham died. I'm telling you, what is happening here, what Paul's trying to get us to see is beyond human comprehension. This is some of the the most incredible wording, I believe, in all the Bible. Not because of its theological treatise, but because of its essence. It's the essence of Christianity. It's the heartbeat of the church. It is what revives man. It is what allows man to have an audience with God. Historically, the church has referred to the miracle of the incarnation as the doctrine of kenosis. That word kenosis is simply taken from, it's a translation from verse 7 where it says, He made Himself. The kenosis was a sovereign self-renunciation. In this kenosis, Christ laid aside his heavenly glory and the independent use of his authority, his divine prerogatives, his eternal riches, his favorable position with the Father, but never in the process did he ever give up being God. See, the Godhead is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. He never gave that up. He never relinquished that. How do you explain it? I don't. I'm just telling you. That's what he says. And that's why I can take it by faith because all I have to do is trust him. That's what he says. That's who he is. Therefore, if Christ stopped ever being God, God himself would have to cease to exist. And that's impossible. God is self-existent. He's eternal. He's immutable. So Christ could never stop being God. But in this kenosis, in this emptying of himself, Christ became something in addition to being God without becoming something less than God. He became what he had not been in his eternal deity. He became a human being. See, the incarnation proves Christmas. The incarnation proves that the gospel is not something we could ever think up. It is inconceivable to our finite minds that God who enjoyed eternal glory, infinite sovereignty, unlimited power would take on the weaknesses and the limitations of humanity. Even if we could come up with the idea of the incarnation, we would have messed it up. By making God a human being with a great power, influence, wealth, fame and skill, something like a superhero. But that is not what God did. Christ but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Nate's servant said it well. Quote, if we could just grasp the significance of the Incarnation. If we could just grasp the significance of the Incarnation the word sacrifice would disappear from our vocabulary. Amen. Amen. Aside he threw his most divine array and did his Godhead in a veil of clay. And in that garb did wondrous love display restoring what he never took away. But we also see in verse 8 his humility not just in heaven, not just at the incarnation, but also in death. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, Christ was not simply a copy of man, but he was fully man, so he could identify with humanity. That's why Luke 2 and verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See, the death of Christ is mentioned twice in verse 8. And these two statements describe the submissive nature and the sacrificial manner of His death. Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson points out the cross can be viewed from five different perspectives. One would be God's perspective. When God saw the cross, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us Jesus was dying as the propitiation for our sins. He absorbed, in other words, God's wrath. The Bible says that God was pleased when he bruised his son. Why? Because Jesus turned God's anger from us. The cross can be viewed from God's perspective. It can also be viewed from Christ's perspective. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly saying, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but thine. Wouldn't life be simpler and sweeter and more satisfying if we lived the way Jesus lived? Not my will, but thine. And the cross was a major aspect. It was certainly a major theme in John's gospel. We also can see the cross from God's perspective, Christ's perspective, but also Satan's perspective. Because to Satan, the cross means the accuser's defeat. In Revelation 12 and verse 11, the accuser of the brethren recognized. His defeat forevermore because of the cross. We can also see the cross from sin's perspective. The cross is the means by which our sin debt is paid. And finally, we can see the cross from our perspective. While acknowledging all these other truths and treasuring the love and the justice of God, as well as the substitutionary life of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus, His victory over Satan and sin... We also note that the cross serves as the supreme standard of behavior. And that's the point that Paul's making in Philippians chapter number two. But Jesus Christ humbled himself in death. It was an act of submission. A real man, he humbled himself, verse eight, by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Some struggle with obedience, being steadfast, unmovable, just because they think I'm going through a hard time. He was obedient to the point of death. No one humbled Jesus. He humbled himself. The message to the Philippians and all the rest of us who are prone to ambition and vainglory is clear in verses 3 and 4. He's telling us, In verse three, let nothing be done through vainglory or through strife rather, that's what I want, or vainglory, that's why I want it. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What is verse three and four? It's drama-free zone is what it is. It's how drama is eliminated It is saying, I don't want anything but that which will promote the glory of God and the kingdom of God. Let nothing be done through what I want or the reason I want it is so that I can be lifted up or I can feel better or I can get my way, but rather in lowliness of mind. Why are we talking about that? Because that's the mind of Jesus. That's the mind he says to have in you. You and I have a date with death that we have no control over. You can diet and exercise and live right, but death is still imminent and it's inescapable. But that is not the way it was with Christ. Death had no control over Jesus. Death did not kill Jesus He freely, he willingly, he voluntarily gave up his life. Why? Because he was humble. He was God. He was man. And yet he was a humble man who was God. The death of Christ was not the result of the plot of religious leaders, nor was it because of the betrayal of Judas, nor was it because of the protests of the crowd, or the sentence of the Roman government, or the actions of the Roman soldiers. Verse 8 tells us exactly what happened. The Bible says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross Jesus died the most scandalous of deaths humanity had not created a more degrading or loathsome experience than this roman society considered the mention of the cross the mention of the cross to be an obscenity he could have declared that his glory was too precious to disrobe for sinners He could have declared that his position was too high to be condescended to sinners. He could have declared that his power was too great to lay aside for sinners. He could have declared that his heavenly possessions were too valuable to part with for sinners. He could have declared that his blood was too good to shed for sinners. He could have declared that his hands were too holy to be pierced for sinners. He could have declared that his life was too sacred for him to surrender for sinners. But he did not do that. Thank God he did not do that. He somehow thought you were worth it. Likewise, the death of Christ was an act of sacrifice. The death of Christ was an act of submission and it was an act of sacrifice. See, crucifixion was the most painful form of execution in the ancient world. It was cruel. It was unusual punishment in which criminals were put to death by an extended process, really, of suffocation. Death by hanging... Stoning or even burning were considered an act of mercy in comparison to crucifixion. You read the accounts. You can go through the church history. You could read history and those that uh, were sentenced to die would request burning, stoning, or hanging so that they would not experience crucifixion. It was so painful that a new term was coined in Latin to describe the agony. The word was excruciating, excruciating. Crucifixion was not just execution, it was torture on every account. And verse 8 says, God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point Of excruciation. It declares the totality of his obedience. Some want to get their gold star because I I did pretty good compared to most other people. But we're not seeing our lives measured by other people. In fact, Paul says to compare ourselves with others, quite frankly, it's a sin, it's not wise. But if we compare ourselves to Christ, it goes on to say even the death of the cross. It declares the extent of his obedience. Earth has no darker sin. History has no blacker page. Humanity has no fouler spot than that of the Savior's excruciating crucifixion. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ was eternally humble in heaven. Verse 6, that's what he's telling us. Verse 7, Christ was self-humbling. In the Christmas aspect, the incarnation. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. But he was self-humbling in his death, verse 8 is telling us. He was eternally humble in heaven in verse 6. He was self-humbling in taking upon a form like us. And he was self-humbling in his death. What does Paul make of the incredible... Self-humbling of Christ. Well, Paul's telling us, do nothing from selfish ambition or pride or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. And it, he's not telling them the others that you choose. He didn't say, here's where you phone another, put him on your other list. He didn't say, choose your top five. Here he's talking to a church. The other would include every single one of them. Have this mind among yourselves, as did Jesus himself. This is the plan. This is the path for everyone. If you want to know a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ... Serving others is to be the vocation of every Christian, poor or rich. So often I'll hear these words, Pastor, I'll do whatever you need me to do, I'll do. And yet I will give suggestions and, no, that's below my gifting grade. That wasn't Jesus' mindset. Do you count others is more significant than yourself? Are you looking out for the interest of others as part of your job description, as part of the body of Christ? Let me close with these words. See if you can guess who may have said this one. If I then... Your Lord and Master have washed your feet. Ye also ought to wash not someone else's, but one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Merry Christmas. Let's stand together, please.